Welcome to the Life of Tea podcast, where we discuss tea as self-cultivation. All the life lessons, zen, awakening, and insights that come through a life of Cha Dao. This will be the focus of this podcast, developing and cultivating ourselves and our spiritual practice through tea. If you're interested in the more linear aspects of tea, how it's produced or made, you might want to check out our magazine, Global Tea Hut, which also includes those topics. If you're interested in the practical aspects of brewing tea, we have a whole series of videos on YouTube called Brewing Tea. Also, you're welcome to come to our center, Tea Sage Hut, here in Miali, Taiwan, and sit a 10-day course where we incorporate all these aspects from the linear to the brewing tea to the spiritual cultivation all together, and you can take a deep dive and immerse yourself and ground yourself in this beautiful practice. We're so excited to have this forum to discuss all the life lessons that we can cultivate together through tea. Welcome, put on a kettle, get out some bowls, and let's drink some tea together. Hi there, and welcome to the Life of Tea podcast. I'm Morgan. And I'm Janos. We are once again pleased to welcome back to the podcast Wude to talk about, to me personally, a very insightful topic, which is creating a vision that suits the world. Um, I find that this touches on the essence of Zen and how to start living more skillfully. So welcome to the podcast, Wude. Mm, great to be here. Love everybody in the hut. Uh, Wude, you often teach about creating a vision that suits the world. Um, I find that a, to be a very deep lesson. Uh, but before we jump into discussing this, can you perhaps repeat this to listeners who haven't heard it before? Yes, of course. Um, well, first of all, this isn't really, uh, you know, as with any of the teachings that I give, they aren't really authored by me. They're more just uh, things that are handed down through tradition. And this is actually a just um, rewording and, and uh, maybe more modern version of really what is the, f the first lesson the Buddha gave after his enlightenment, which is that the source of our suffering is due to our constant arguing with reality. And so we want what is to be is not, we want what is not to be is, and we're in a state of uh, <clears throat> antagonism with our, with our lives and with reality itself. So uh, creating a vision that suits the world is about healing, um, healing our relationship to our, to our life and our orientation to um, the obstacles in our life and to the challenges in our life. Because the biggest problem that most people have is that they think they should live without problems. Mm -hmm. That is their biggest problem, is that they think they should be living without problems. They think that living without problems is possible and that they should be doing that. And so they are also not only arguing with reality, but arguing with themselves because they beat themselves up for having the problems that they have. And so in other words, we're actively engaged in creating a world that suits our vision of what we think it should be. And the problem with that is that the world is composed through and through from its largest elements to its smallest elements of impermanence and change and flow. So the galaxies are spinning and expanding, the planets are moving, the stars are moving, 
and then down to the smallest subatomic particle moving so fast we can't even see it, we can only just map its behavior. And so everything is spinning and vibrating and moving, and in this uh, flow and movement, uh, even if you do get some portion of reality to take the shape of what your vision is, what you think it should be, it won't stay that way. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes also, you, if you're arguing with things that you don't have power over, then you won't be able to get it to to uh, resemble your vision of what you think it should be anyway. And so it's almost like the Eddie Murphy movies, The Nutty Professor, where it's like the, the real you comes out <laughs> and then you like stuff it back in because you have some mold of what of, of what you think you should be some spiritual version of yourself and you stuff yourself into that mold and pretend you are that being and living authentically and then the real you starts popping out and there's also pressure and uh and tension as a result of living in that unnatural way for you and and or you, you or this so that would be the inward version of trying to create a world that suits your vision of what you think it should be. The outward expression of this would be trying to uh, manipulate uh, situations towards good results. And uh, so, and oftentimes we can't control so many aspects of this world. And even the parts that we can control, if we get them in order, they won't stay that way. It's like building sandcastles. The tides are coming and they're washed away by the impermanence of nature itself. Mm -hmm. So the... Wisdom is that we reverse this as opposed to expending our energy constantly trying to um, create a, a world that suits our vision of what we think it should be. We create a vision that suits the world, mm. which is to say we harmonize our vision with reality as it is, which is to harmonize our vision with the Tao. And um, so this topic actually is incredibly deep and... Um, it's the you know it's the first essential teaching of the Buddha, and so it, from there is the entire forty years of ministry of the Buddha, and then the two thousand years of Buddhist tradition since, and all of that wisdom and practice really unfolds within this dynamic, um, as do as do other traditions. Other traditions are also Buddha Dharma. Um, Buddha is not a person. Buddha means awakened one, and even Siddhartha Gautama is not the first Buddha. There are in the mythology there are many Buddhas before him. So the truth, uh, you know, the Buddha's body is com- was composed of atoms, and those atoms were born billions of years ago. And so those atoms in, from a star and all of the mountains and rivers and every and nature is also Buddha Dharma, and and the teachings of Jesus are Buddha Dharma, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, really, all things are are talking about this, and you know, we can think of this in another language, which is that. Um, as modern life becomes more stressful, and especially with the increase of modern technology and the influence of modern technology on the psyche, um, what's happening to more and more people is that there's a there's a breaking of the a split of the spirit and body. Um, it's actually more subtle than that because uh, it's more of a split of the part of the spirit that deals with the body and the part of the spirit that deals with more spiritual things. These are called the Hun and Po in Chinese. So this split, basically what, what, what it means is, you know, ideally we have, 
we, you can think of this in terms of yin and yang. Ideally, we have we're supposed to live with uh, hot feet and cool heads, mm-hmm. but people now all have hot heads and cold feet, <laughs> right? Because of this split. So what what happens when the split happens um, is that the psychic, inspirational, uh, intellectual, mental faculty starts to split from the part of the heart mind that deals with sensations and somatic um, experience, body experience. And when that split happens, the depending on which way it goes, you could have the psyche, then all the energy starts to go to the somatic part, to the physical part. And that results in blockages in the body, chronic pains, depression, obsessions, physical obsessions with sex or drugs or whatever. Or the energy all goes to the intellectual. Mm. And then that results in anxiety, restlessness. Uh, this is more common, right? And, uh, and uh, th- things like that. Uh, uh, nervousness and uh, inability to, to sit still. And this, 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 this actually just comes from a loss of the biorhythms. Right. Our ancestors had biorhythms so that their their organism was in harmony with nature, with the seasons, with day and night. They slept at night, woke up at day. They didn't use clocks, etc. Right. But we moved into an industrial age where we measure our days using clocks, not using nature. So this this um, they had all these biorhythms and the biorhythms regulated things. So when these things are together and there's a proper dynamic balance between these aspects of our spirit, then you have the the instinctual somatic visceral uh, sensorial is grounding the intellectual spiritual right and the intellectual spiritual gives visions and dreams and spirit to the body right and so these things then live in balance and the disharmony of this right uh the, the breaking of this results in a, a, a amongst other things in a lot of fear mm. and in a worldview that is based at its deepest substratum at its foundation the the worldview that most people operate within and by worldview i don't mean philosophy so this isn't your beliefs or what you think your view is underlying that it's more the bones of how you think mm. and so the, the common worldview now in the world is based on a foundation of a separation of the world into self and not self, a dualism of myself and that which is outside of me. And the problem with that uh, worldview is that it is intrinsically, inherently uh, destructive and aggressive. So it views problems as things to attack. Mm. And so when you attack the problems, that just creates more problems. And, and in nature, there's more of a unity. There's no us and them. There's just us. We even uh, edit the nature film to just be the competition, the toxins of plants and the, the crocodile killing this and, the da, 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 and everything's competition and fight. Our cities are also like war zones because they come from this worldview, right? And things are aggressive. Nature is aggressive. The lesson is always just, see, I told you the world's against you. Hmm. Right, you go. You you want to go to the park and drink tea, and you step outside your house, and it's raining. And in this worldview, it's like, oh man, it's raining. That sucks. <laughs> right? 
which you don't realize the hypocrisy of that, which is the very tea that you want to drink is the rain. <laughs> it, it is born of the rain. It was created by the rain. Rain is life. You are also rain. Yeah. You, you, you drink rain, you eat rain, you, right? <laughs> so rain is not a problem, <laughs> right? And the world is, is not necessarily aggressive. In the least, in the least, the competitive, aggressive side of nature, because certainly that's there, but in the least, from one level, we can see, we can look at it as though it's not there and see it all as cooperation. But from another level, it's only half the equation. In the Chinese cosmology, which then becomes the Zen cosmology, there is a, a the cycling of the elements. You have the controlling slash like destructive cycle, and then you have the creating, nourishing cycle. If there and if these two things weren't in balance. If the nourishing cycle was all there was, then the whole world would just be blah, 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 and overpopulated mm -hmm. and there would be nothing. So the destructive cycle is necessary. But if, if the destructive cycle was all there was, which is what this worldview makes it seem like, that everything's out to get you, everything's competitive, everything, you know, we're even taught subconsciously as we grow up that as long as I get what I want, the consequences to my enemies doesn't matter. Whether those enemies are people or the earth or, you know, nature, take its resources, get what you want and need, and the consequences don't matter. Mm. And in that worldview, if that was true, if nature was really all competition and fight, fight or flight and survival and fight, if that's all there was, just the destructive cycle, you see that over billions of years, the life would just dwindle and disappear, because there'd be nothing but destruction. Mm -hmm. Destruction, destruction, destruction. Everything would just break apart. You, you eventually would result in nothingness. Mm -hmm. So these two things are in balance. And when you then see that they're in balance, this is where, as I said, you could step up to a larger meta level and look at the whole thing and see that even the destructive uh, cycle and the creative cycle, because they're in balance and they're part of each other, life and death, and we, we live because of the death of plants or organisms and and that death makes more life and you see that the cycle's going like this then you can step up and instead of saying yes the the competitive struggle fight uh, cycle is part of nature and so is the creative and they're at least balanced but if you step up and see that the way that they're balanced and interconnected means that the whole thing is really a cooperative force mm -hmm. uh, the whole thing is really a, a, a flow of a balance and harmony and so in nature, right, the, the wolf is not a problem. In the worldview of self and other, uh, because my, my things can become part of self. And so the, my, uh, my sheep, right? And so I'm a sheep farmer and I, and I have sheep and these are my sheep and there's a wolf coming that's eating one of my sheeps. Again, in this, in this worldview, problems are things to attack. The solution is kill the wolf. Mm -hmm. He's a problem. But in nature, the wolf is not a problem. The wolf actually both, we could say, above and below it, its influences are all positive. First of all, it doesn't come into the herd of sheep and slaughter all the sheep for sport and then, and then just leave their dead bodies. It kills one, eats it, and then it goes into a, its lair for three days and licks the blood off its paws. And... Second of all, it can't consume the whole of that sheep's body. I don't know what percent, but let's just make up a percent and say the, the wolf can consume 30% of the, of the sheep's body. So it consumes some of the meat and organs. And then the remainder of that carcass 
is consumed by all sorts of animals that can't kill on their own. Mm-hmm. Vultures and other carrions and, and also microbes and, and other organisms from small to large that require the wolf to kill for them or they, all, or they will go extinct. Mm. So through the wolf, they all live. So the wolf is highly beneficial to them. He's, he's not a problem in their worldview. He's, a, he's an asset. He's essential to their survival. And then even the wolf's influence on the sheep in the, in the balance of nature is not a problem because the, sh- the wolf culls the herd and keeps the herd at, the, at its, the size that's healthy for it. Where I grew up in rural Ohio, the wolves are all gone and they pay hunters, literally pay hunters every year to kill deer. Because if you don't take out some of the deer, the entire deer population will not survive the winter because there won't be enough food. Mm. And uh, you can see the years when the news is saying, uh, because there's a lot of, I grew up in the country, there's a lot of deer in our backyard because we have apple trees and they come to eat the apples because we let them fall. And uh, so the years when, the, when the, there was a direct concordance experientially between the years when the news channel was actively trying to get hunters to go hunt more and the like thinness and suffering of the deers that we would see in our yards. So I, I witnessed that as a child. So that, that, um, that, that balance is there. And uh, the final aspect of this, and then we can get into your questions, but the final aspect of this is that this, this worldview of, of, that is based on this foundation of separation of self and other, this dualism, it is, it, it is also, it's ill-equipped for human health, first of all, because it's, you know, of all these reasons I mentioned, it creates a sense of struggle, it creates a sense of um, alienation. But ultimately, really, to be blunt, it, it is really a pathetic lie. It's a lie because the life force in our eyes is the same life force in the plants, in the animals, in, in all things. And it's, and it's pathetic because it forces us to live a life of alienation and separation and have no unity in our, in our existence. Also, one of its biggest fundamental problems is that it is ultimately fear-based. It creates a lot of fear. And the evidence of this is look around you in our society, which is constantly fear-mongering. Not just the news and the media. People you meet also are constantly fear-mongering. Um, and so it's a, it's a fear-based system because the world's out to get you. Others are out to get you. You're, you're then, you know, and this isn't, we have to qualify because there is a healthy kind of fear. You don't want to throw out all fear. There's, fear is a natural response to clear and present danger. Or we, or we could say perceived clear and present danger. It doesn't even have to be real. Our ancestors learned when, when they came down from the trees that when the grass moves, you go back up the tree. Hmm. It doesn't matter if it's the wind. It could be a lion. You go back up the tree. So that's a good fear. That's clear and present danger. Whether it's real or perceived doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But we're not talking about that fear. We're talking about a mind-made fear. And this mind-made fear uh, manifests in a constant plotting and scheming to mitigate loss and get good results. Which is... Back to what this whole conversation is about. Essentially, that what that is, is trying to create a world that suits your vision of what you think it should be. Plotting and scheming to get good results and mitigate loss. And this has resulted in a society that is using trying to use greed to outrun fear. Or the other extreme is, is, is numbness. 
using distraction, drugs, sex, alcohol, social media, whatever, using distraction to numb yourself. And numb, numbness really, if you think about it, is just another kind of fear. Mm. It's a fear of feeling. Mm-hmm. It's a fear of vulnerability. Um, and, and the problem with these mind-made fears, which again is not the healthy fear, which is a response to clear and present danger and motivates you to act. The problem with these mind-made fears, this plotting and scheming, is that they just breed more fears. They don't ever resolve anything, right? And so the, this this constant plotting and scheming to mitigate loss and to get good results uh, is basically uh, creates a, a war, a constant war with nature. Mm-hmm. And the obvious war with nature is apparent everywhere around us. Um, as individuals and as a, as a species right now, we're in constant war with nature, with each other, with ourselves. And that war you know, of course, present, prevents peace and tranquility and wisdom and insight and et cetera. And so you, you, this, this battle of plotting and scheming, it's, it's dangerous and especially dangerous in the side of, uh, less dangerous in the plotting and scheming to get good results and more dangerous in the plotting and scheming to mitigate loss. Because that's, I mean, essentially in the modern world, we've mitigated a lot of loss. Our lives are pretty comfortable compared to our ancestors. We have flushing toilets and showers and we've eradicated a lot of diseases and uh, even some social injustices are either gone or on their way out. Um, and this is all, to an extent, it's good. Uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that it's positive or negative, but the, it has become an unconscious pattern where we're trying to mitigate all loss. But the problem is that when you mitigate loss, you're also mitigating transformation. And so you get into like stagnation and stuckness, which is in Chinese cosmology is illness, Mm -hmm. um, spiritual or physical. So people, you know, your relationship to loss is your relationship to transformation because things have to break apart in order to be synthesized into a new form. So for you to grow, right? It's like if you go to the gym, you have to break up, you break your muscles so that they can regrow bigger and stronger. And the same thing has to happen psychically. We have to break ourselves to grow stronger. And so the, a healthy orientation towards the, the, the problems in life is um, that they're offerings. Hmm. No pain, no gain. Turn the medicine into suffering, which is, again, switching this, creating harmony, returning to the Tao. This is a return to the Tao. When, when we say that people's spirits have split, when we say that the, uh, they've gotten lost in this worldview of ant- antagony and separation, we say we can also in another language say people have lost their Tao. And so to return to the Tao, to find your Tao, is to integrate and find the harmony. And this means creating a vision that suits the world, as opposed to constantly arguing with reality, trying to get it to to resemble what you want it to. And... It won't again. It, first of all, that's very difficult. Uh, you you're not God, so you can't change all of reality. What you're really trying to do is change one theater, one little area of reality, and it, that's very difficult to do. And second, even if you do do it, it won't stay that way. It won't stay put, and so it will come undone again, and you'll suffer. So a better relationship is to be onto it. But this is not let this is not um, this integration and return. Is not a return. It's very important that we understand that this is not a return to some kind of childlike innocence. Nowadays, as people have lost their Tao, a lot of people have returned to these ideas of like the noble savage, 
that like all indigenous people are holy and sacred and the way forward is the way back. That's wrong. First of all, it's dangerous to consider like indigenous life ways as sacred or holy uh, because there was a lot of nastiness hmm. in those days and things that we have transcended that we want to stay transcended <laughs> uh, and, and get past. Like, for example, the more tribal we are as a species, the more we fight. The more tribal we are, the more separated we are, the more war there is. So the more integrated we become as a society, the less of that there is. That's a good thing. There's a lot of good things. So we're not trying to go back to some childlike innocence. We're not trying to uh, just surrender into the whims of our instincts and be a pincushion or some kind of mindless glob. Nor are we trying to go forward to some paradise or utopia. Right? That's the other danger. Is like we're going. We need to do X, Y, Z so we can get forward to some paradise and and uh, at the end of the road, right? So return to the Tao. Kind of, you have to transcend those two those two extremes, um, and uh, it's a it's a way. It's a returning back to go forward. It's a relationship towards the the process of breaking apart and coming back together that allows and facilitates that alchemy to happen in a transformational way so that things break apart and then are synthesized into something new and that new thing is more complex and of higher quality and higher quality energy than the previous form and that's the, that's how we grow that's how we grow by going to the gym and getting fit that's how we get fit spiritually as well as mentally so that's a that's a, a healthy orientation towards reality but ultimately having a vision that suits reality means living in concordance with the with the way things are which means getting as close as you can to a lifestyle that um, harmonizes with objective reality which means clarity of vision and um, and an ability to see independent of all your personal and cultural fabrications which is the first step is recognizing that we all look through our own sort of filters and see the world in uh, through them I'd say that's an aspect of it. Um, the, the, again, because this is the first teaching of the Buddha and 40 years of ministry come from that and then 2,000 years of Zen. And then, as I said, Buddha Dharma is also all the other traditions of the world as well. And so all traditions are talking about this. In Christianity, what we're talking about is the fall from the garden, the breaking of the disharmony, and then how to get back to that, that unity. So it's in, every, it's in every tradition, every language. So this is a big, huge topic. And almost anything you say will be a part of that return and reintegration and finding of the Tao, including this, uh, recognizing that you have a lot of filters. And, and yes, because a lot of our day-to-day -day perceptions, we walk around assuming that they are objective reality, but they're not. Small example, right? The qualities that we perceive in situations or objects, we often assume that they are in the object or in the situation when actually they're in us. So I find durian disgusting. <laughs> and I just assume that durian is disgusting. I even use that language. I turn to my friend Morgan and say, hey, Morgan, did you know <laughs> durian is disgusting? But then Morgan says, wait a minute, I find durian delicious. What are you talking about? So durian, the deliciousness or disgustingness of durian is not in the durian. It has nothing to do with durian. It doesn't matter even if you take an extreme example, like a, a pile of poop on the road, and you say, well, surely everybody finds that disgusting. Well, not really. The earth likes it. It's fertilizer. And there are bugs that eat it, right? So it's a, it's a dinner for a dung beetle. It's a house. 
<laughs> right? So it's not, it's not um, the, the qualities that we perceive in things are in us, not in those things. Or if you're not willing to go that far, at least meet me halfway and say that the qualities are half in the thing and half in you <laughs> or in the meeting of you in the thing, mm-hmm. right? But you see, this is one, just one area of many in which we go around day to day and assume that our perceptions are objective reality. And then we base our uh, actions on that presumption that what we're experiencing is objective reality, right? Mm-hmm. Another example is something in psychology well-documented called the uh, fundamental attribution error, which is basically that when we are making decisions, we allow for contextual and situational exceptions. But when we're evaluating the behavior of others, we do not. So basically, I'm late for the, to get to the airport, I'm late for my flight, so I'm cutting people off in traffic, but it's okay because this is an exception because I'm late and I got to catch my flight. So there's like situational factors that have a lot that have caused me to compromise, right? But when someone else cuts someone else in, off in traffic, there are no situational factors. It's his fault. He's a jerk. It's his personality. We don't allow situational uh, exceptions or factors when we evaluate other people's behavior, but we do when we're evaluating our own behavior. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is an error because that other person also has situational exceptions and factors which are influencing their behavior, of course. Mm-hmm. So should we allow those situational factors when we're evaluating other people's behavior or should we not allow them for ourselves as well when we're... Well, this, that, that, these are just examples of ways in which you're, we assume that our perceptions uh, are objective reality or resemble objective reality and then mistakenly uh, use that to navigate. Mm-hmm. We, we, we base our behavior on the assumption that our perceptions are accurate, that they represent objective reality, but they don't, which then mucks the whole system up and the, and the behavior also. So these are just examples of that. Um, in that instance, I mean, obviously as the doors open, then there's more compassion and tolerance. We're, it's, so, it's so natural and easy for us to forgive in ourselves and justify our own behavior. Um, but, we, but we're reluctant to do so for others. So this is, the, this is the opportunity to practice tolerance and forgiveness. I mean, essentially, either that person is, uh, has some exception. Ordinarily, they're, they don't cut people off, but now they're doing it for some situational reason, just like you would. Or they're stuck in a lot more long-term pattern, right? But ultimately, you know, the, the response is compassion and tolerance and forgiveness. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's the, that, the, the spiritual answer to other people's is let the one with no sin cast the first stone. It's forgiveness. It's no wonder Jesus used the analogy of sight to talk about these things than saying that the, the person cutting people off in traffic has a splinter in his eye. So he's partially blind. But the moment you start judging him, you have a log in yours, which means you're fully blind. <laughs> uh, so you, you go more blind in judgment than the person who is doing whatever, hmm. right? And, and partially for the reasons we've been speaking about here, which is that your perceptions are, may not be accurate, that they might not even be doing what you think they're doing. So it, it can go to that level. It could be your, your, there's a misunderstanding all the way to the, further, the other ex, fur, furthest extreme, which is that they didn't even do what you think they did. 
mm-hmm. right? Maybe they didn't. They, you you heard them say something insulting, but they didn't even say something insulting. You just the filters were that strong. Yeah. So, uh, as an aspect of creating a a vision that suits the world, I guess certainly uh, as an aspect of that practice, the, you need to come to the recognition that um, our perceptions are not so reliable. Hmm. And um, so we need um, other tools for learning to see more objectively. So oftentimes in discourse, discourses you've um, talked about dukkha, anicca, anatta, you refer to them as the three kings, um, otherwise known as the three characteristics, three marks of existence. How does understanding and having a healthy relationship to Anicca, specifically impermanence, lend to a vision that suits the world? Mm. Yeah, well, the, the, the world itself fundamentally is, is Anicca. I mean, it is impermanence in, 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 its, in its everything. From, again, from the largest bodies, whole galaxies swirling, Literally, the Milky Way swirling, right? Swirling, turning, expanding, uh, moving, and down to the smallest specks of dust, also spinning, vibrating, moving. So the whole thing is flowing and moving. And that's the nature of the reality that we find ourselves in. Um, and so, obviously, a vision that corresponds and is harmonious with reality would take that law into account, would be onto that law harmoniously. Um, an example of that, of, of a way in which we can get um, in disharmony with that. And m- most people most often are in disharmony with that. In fact, in, in Buddhism, there are three sources of suffering. One source of suffering is the obvious, physical and mental anguish. So emotional pain, someone you love dies or you break your knee, right? Physical and mental anguish, that's the obvious form of suffering. Second kind of suffering is what we're, the whole topic of today's discussion, which is essentially delusion being discordant with reality, right? Being, uh, having a vision or trying to create a world that suits your vision, all this stuff we're talking about. And the third source of suffering is change. And so, uh, but you could actually, you could lump that into the second one if you wanted. Um, But, uh, you know, obviously one of the many ways in which um, an unhealthy relationship with anicca, with impermanence can cause suffering is, is is very apparent in the world right now which is inflexible ideas mm-hmm. obviously if you live in a universe that is inc- that is incredibly fundamentally thoroughly malleable created of nothing of but flow and movement like a river inflexible ideas are unhealthy they're blind like justice is blind or you know what i mean political laws the law is impersonal and that's its greatest problem it has assets but and even that can be an asset in some situations because when the law is impersonal, that allows it to maybe be more objective. But in all kinds of situations, it also causes problems because the law can't bend and it and and life needs to bend. As the old man says in the Tao Te Ching, like, things that are alive are flexible and moving and things that are dead are rigid. So the rigidity of ideas, inflexibility, frozenness of ideas automatically means you're 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 discordant with reality and that's very common now especially as politics are have become so important so you have people on this side and people on this side and their views are very inflexible and the more inflexible their views are the more they will battle 
the more inflexible your views are, the more you'll struggle, right? So you got dudes that eat vegan, and then you literally you got dudes that eat nothing but meat. They don't eat anything but meat, but animal products, no vegetables, zero, right? And they got data to back that up. And then you got dudes that eat vegan, and they got data that back that up. Or you got dudes on the right, and you got dudes on the left politically, right? And if the views are very fixed and rigid. Right, and this could be in our personal lives too. Like I have, I have some view of who Morgan is. Morgan is, mm, right? Morgan is a, mm. she's a, whatever it is. I don't know. Uh, let's just say hypothetically. I don't mean this, but let's say you and I work together, and I feel like uh, you're you've been dishonest at work, and so I write a story that's inflexible that says Morgan's a liar, mm. and that's my story. And now you and I are going to have conflict for the duration of our, our the, of the time that we're colleagues. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, even if I, what do I mean really by that? Morgan is a liar. It's not like every, even if you say, even if somebody's been dishonest, right? Let's say they were, you you caught them being dishonest three times. So it's like, it is, and others witnessed it too. So it's not like a, it's not just a perception like we were talking about earlier. It's a, it's an objective fact. This person lied three times for their own gains. Like it's still, let's say you've known them a year. What percentage of the year was those three times? It's not like that person is going around 24 hours a day just lying, 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 everything that comes out of their mouth is lying, 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 lying. They just, again, they did that three times. And back to that fundamental attribution error, they probably had reasons for doing it. Situational, contextual factors that influence their behavior or unconscious habit patterns that they can't control. So it was either caused by unconscious habit patterns that they can't control. Do you know what it feels like to be overwhelmed by unconscious habit patterns that you can't control? Do you know what that feels like? Absolutely. Okay. So (laughs) then you should have compassion for that person who had that. Or the other thing is they lied consciously. That's the other possibility. They lied consciously because they had, there were situational factors that you don't understand because you're, you're not, you're doing that fundamental attribution here and you don't, you're not allowing the fact that maybe those were, those three times were, were exceptions that they felt were necessary. But, but now I've got this rigid idea of who Morgan is. And um, so even when you tell me the truth, it won't register because it's going to come against this, this rigid view. So a rigid view is a strong example of a way in which um, your view, and again, view is not a philosophy. You can't think your way to a view. View is the more of the how you think. It's the bones of your thinking, of your psyche. It's not, the, um, it's not what you believe when somebody asks you, what do you believe? And then you go down a thought railway, an intellectual path, right? It's not an, not an intellectual path. View is there even when you're not thinking, even when you're unconscious. So with that view, with, with rigid views, rigid opinions, rigid um, philosophies, we are automatically discordant with reality because reality is impermanent and changing and flowing and situations are all flowing and unique. And so when you approach a unique situation, you, you know, it doesn't matter what rigid philosophy you have, there are exceptions to it. In other words, is what I'm saying, mm-hmm. right? No matter what, no matter how strongly you believe about um, any issue, any political issue, right? There are exceptions to it, right? Like you say, you say, uh, oh, you know, all drug users should be prosecuted to the maximum extent of the law. And you have this very rigid view of that. 
And then we make a law like that. And the law is impersonal and, in, and inhuman and has no flexibility. But then along come these situations where it doesn't work anymore, where the proper response is compassion and help, not punishment. And punishment just makes the situation worse. You see? Mm -hmm. Though in certain situations, the punishment is the correct answer. Yeah. In others, it just doesn't. You see? So we're in a flowing world, and so inflexible ideas are unhealthy. So getting stuck in inflexible view worldviews, getting stuck in inflexibility itself goes against nature and is opposed. So we have to... And you're also... You're blocking the mind. This leads to a blocked up mind and with a clogged up mind, new insights can't come in. So there's no room for new insights because you're full of what you think you know. Right? This is why in wisdom in Sanskrit is prajna, which prajna means before and nyaya is knowledge. So it's the beginner's mind, that which is before knowledge. So the more you know, it's the more you get clogged and you stop seeing new things and you stop get taking in new insights and new ways of looking at things and you stop growing and you get stuck. So that's one way in which Anicca applies to uh, how we should have a vision that suits the world. But there are many others, of course. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about how it applies um, particularly to a lot of us in the West, how we're constantly um, on this hamster wheel of struggling to achieve the impossible. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, a power-driven will. And an inability to accept is is the fundamental um, dis-ease of of the worldview that separates self into uh, the world into self and not self and everything's aggressive and and, uh, and 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 there's an inability then to accept there's an inability to surrender um, and without that surrender there's no harmony with nature with the earth with the Tao and there's not a and there's a there's a tension, obviously. And then comes that separation of the yin and yang that we talked about earlier and the, the, those, those discomforts that come as a result when the, when the consciousness retreats to the somatic, visceral, sensational side, then there's chronic pains and depression and obsession. And when it goes into the intellectual, it's uh, franticness, nervousness, anxiety, etc. And sometimes even the flip-flopping of these both. Right. This is the again. This is getting a loss of the visions and dreams that should support the body, which is the spirit, you know, mm -hmm. and the connect spirit's connection to the organic, natural biorhythms and the healthy, uh, vitalizing energy of the instincts and, and the and the body itself. Right. So in Zen we say, uh, gaze at the stars, but walk on the earth which is a way of saying this like this balance, the, the grounding energy of our body and the uplifting energy of our spirit in balance, right? And so when those get out of balance and there's a disharmony with the body, with the wisdom of the body, a disharmony with the, with the dreams and visions that should empower the body and the life, all of that gets wonked in haywire and then there's all these stress. Sometimes it's like the, the biorhythms are all off. All the biorhythms should be based on night and day, the seasons of the year, right? What we eat even should be based on the seasons of the year. How we be, uh, as autumn and winter come, we should, we should settle down, right? But we gear up because of the holidays and things. And so our biorhythms are basically periods of frantic action followed by passive exhaustion. Mm. Frantic action, passive exhaustion. Frantic action, passive exhaustion. And this just disrupts the whole system and, and creates all kinds of... Um, 
of um, symptoms. Hmm. And this, as I said, this is a modern problem that is increasing with the um, influence of technology in our lives. Hmm. Because the more, the more our lives become influenced by and based upon the rhythms of technology, the less they are based upon the, the natural biorhythms of our body and nature. People wake up to the sound of their phone, not to dawn. So what it sounds like is that this vision or these teachings are pointing to our attachment or inability to maintain anything. Um, would you mind giving like a more clear example of that? Yeah, but I think it's also clear, it's also important to state that like the again the idea is not uh, neither a like regression to just surrender to the whims of the impulses nor like a paradisical future. So the idea is not to be a pincushion. Creating a vision that suits the world doesn't then mean you don't act hmm. and you're just a mindless you know person or that you can't even take a strong stance. Even earlier, I was saying avoid frozen, rigid opinions. That doesn't mean you can't take a strong stance when the situation requires a strong stance, right? So saying that having frozen, rigid philosophies puts you at odds with reality, which is made of malleability and impermanence, doesn't mean that you can't be strong. Sometimes there's a situation where you have to be strong. Where it gets discordant is when you're flexed and strong all the time, hmm. even in situations that require softness do you see mm -hmm. so um sometimes we have to harden up we are made of both we have bones they hold our structure and we have muscle and tissue and soft parts and we need both otherwise we'd be goop or we would be a log <laughs> right we can't be either we have to be both and we, so we have to sometimes act very strongly and take a stance sometimes it has to be a very strong stance but being stuck in strong stance mode all day long sucks just like being stuck in lose goop mode all day long would suck. So uh, when I say d that um, having frozen, rigid, inflexible ideas is unhealthy, that doesn't mean one never takes an inflexible stance. But when you hold those inflexible philosophies, it's like you're holding them constantly. So you're constantly in an inflexible state. That's not, that's not really. You have to be flexible in your even in your movement between flexible and inflexible if that makes sense mm -hmm. um and so uh it's not that we shouldn't act it's not that we shouldn't strive to, to achieve our dreams and goals quite the opposite right but we shouldn't be attached to the results there's an old zen saying right which is is it better to succeed or to find fulfillment in the effort if you don't know you're not ready for zen right we are not creatures of destination we are creatures of journey. Destination is death for us. We are here to flow and move and grow and progress. You get to 25 laps at the gym, you just want to do 30. You get to 30, you want to do 35. It doesn't, we're not creatures of destination. So, um, you know, you mentioned an example. An example on a worldly level is somebody that's got it all together, which I guess from the like basic parameters of our society, let's say that here's George and he's got a hot young wife and two kids one cute boy one cute girl and he's got a minivan and a sports car and a job he loves with a great salary and a brand new house so from the world's perspective he's got it all together it's all in order he has created a world that suits his vision of what he thinks it should be he's like yeah this is what the what the world told me i wanted this is what i need and this is what i uh you know i wanted to create and i created that vision right 
First of all, because we're not creatures of destination, when he arrives at that place, it's not going to be as satisfying as he thinks. All that's going to happen is the mind is going to say, now what? Hmm. hmm. Like I achieved what I set out to achieve. Now what? Right, what's next? Because we're creatures of a journey. It's not the same to take the helicopter to the top of the mountain as it is to come down. So um, he's lucky he got things in order, at least in one area of his life. Oftentimes what happens is we get our career in order, our relationship goes bad. If we get our relationship in order, our career goes bad, etc. But let's say he's got it all together. He's got a good relationship. He's got good kids. He's got the house, the job, the whole, all of it. But again, all of this was built out of what? Out of a universe. Out of the stuff of this world. And the stuff of this world is composed through and through of Anicca. It's composed through and through of change. So all that's going to happen now is change. In the book of changes in the oracle... The I Ching, the, there's hexagrams. And the 63rd hexagram is the perfect one. It's where all the yin and yang lines are in perfect order. And both the Duke Zhou and Confucius give a warning about this hexagram, which is that when things are in perfect order, there's only one thing that can happen now. When you're at the peak of the mountain, there's only one direction to go now, down. So everything that that dude owns is going to come apart. His new house is going to get old. The new cars are going to get old. The job that respected him will send him home with a watch and hire somebody younger his kids will grow up and leave uh, and that's that would be good there's all kinds of other negative possibilities too maybe one becomes a drug addict and needs his help i don't know the hot young wife also gets old everything will grow old and eventually his friends and family will start to die and then he'll get the call he has six months left to live and his very body will come apart and so all that he built will come apart right but again i started this with the caveat that doesn't mean that George should not pursue that life and should just be like, oh, it's all meaningless anyway, and take the extreme of nihilism and then just go lay on the street as a homeless person and get drunk all the time and not pursue a life that brings comfort to him and his family, right? So it's not about the, it's not about the what, it's about the how. It's not a, like Zen doesn't deal with the what. All too often students come to me and want to, want to work with me like either a i'm a holy man who can do something for them which i'm not i'm composed of the same stuff you are and that includes problems and sin and all kinds of other things there's nothing holy here and i can't do anything for you i'm not a mystic man or a healer or a holy man or any of those things i'm a dude from ohio <laughs> or they want to relate to me as a psychotherapist i'm not a psychotherapist either i don't have any training in any of that so i can't help you on an intellectual level, talk through your psychological problems. A Zen teacher is not concerned with the what of your life. I don't care what you do. Join a nudist colony, become a fisherman, move to Africa, or live in Tallahassee. It doesn't matter to me the what of your life. Zen is not concerned with what, it's concerned with how. So if it's in your fulfillment and in your destiny map to get a house and two, and a hot wife and two pretty kids and a nice job and an and all those things that George achieved, then go achieve those things. In fact, not only go achieve them, you have my blessings and prayers. May you fulfill yourself. What I'm concerned with is the how. I'm concerned with the idea that those things are going to fulfill you, which they're not. The idea that you're going to achieve, that they're lasting, which they're not. That is also why they're one of the reasons why they're unfulfilling. They're unsatisfactory because they won't last. So that means that that if if you're like like let's let's get let's look at the let's break apart a couple of the aspects of this example marriage right people think zen's against marriage or buddhism is against marriage it's not the 
the Buddha gave medicine. Well, he was a doctor. I'm a kind of doctor too. Uh, most a lot of people don't know this, but for thousands of years, in first in local region of China and then all throughout China, there were doctors that worked only with tea. They're called cha bo shi, and literally that's you know essentially what I'm doing. And the, but the idea the idea that uh, you know that the Buddha gave, the Buddha so the Buddha gave medicine depending on the patient. People who were depressed and nihilistic, he gave them meditations like metta to sit around and think about butterflies and joy and wonderful things that make you happy and love and your mother and etc. And but m more often the problem that people bring is is believing that their perceptions are objective reality and they're caught in all kinds of fantasies. And so then the medicine is to cut through that delusion. And so that's what you get more often but then it's assumed that that's a that that's a frozen rigid stance in Buddhism. That Buddhism is negative and nihilistic. But again, just because I take a hard stance, don't write a story about me that I am always in a hard stance, right? That's you, people do that. They meet Wuda and he's in a hard stance. And like, oh, Wuda's a hard man. He's angry all the time, or he's a uh, this. But then you meet me when I'm laughing and happy, and you write a story about Wuda the clown, or you meet me when I'm peaceful and you write a story about Wuda the peaceful person. I'm none of those things. I can take all of those stances. Um, I have the ability to take all of those stances. I'm not stuck in any of them. Right. So, so the harshness isn't about like, you know, people think like Buddhism is anti-marriage or anti-family. That's not true. It's, it's not the question of whether to get married or not is not an issue in Zen. Again, that's the what of your life. If you come to me and say, Wuda, should I get married or not? Like you're trying to, again, deal with me as a psychotherapist. I'm not a psychotherapist. I don't know. Go figure that out yourself. <laughs> right, I don't have an answer for that. What I do have an answer for is the how you get married. What I can say to you is that if you are getting married because you think it will fulfill you, you're getting married for the wrong reason. Mm. Huh? Marriage is not the happy ending in anything but Disney movies. Right? Ask any married person and they'll verify that. It's not the happy ending. There is no and they live happily ever after. There is no ever after. And there's certainly no happily. Hmm. Right? So it's not happily again is trying to mitigate loss, which means mitigate growth, which means mitigate transformation, because growth is caused by things coming apart. Even look at on a physical level. You take substance like plants, you chew them up, you kill them. Mm -hmm. Then you chew them up and then integrate them into your form. So the destruction and reforming, the death and rebirth of the psyche of the body is how we grow. And when we too, when we over mitigate loss too much. It's good to mitigate loss. It's good that we've got plumbing and we've eradicated diseases and things. It's good to mitigate loss. But when we do it too much, we're also mitigating loss that's important to transformation. And when our relationship to loss is unhealthy, right, then we, all we see is obstacles. The whole world's obstacles. Even rain. You go outside and it's raining and that's an obstacle. Rain's not an obstacle. Rain makes you live. <laughs> uh, so to, that's too much uh, and the you know the Buddha has no obstacles, only offerings. Turn the obstacles into offerings. Turn the offerings into dharmas. This is the mantra over and over again in the proper relationship. So, marriage to fulfill you is is actually also a form of violence because you're laying a trip on that other person. Because what you're saying to that other person is complete me, mm. fulfill me. And can what do you think? Can they do that? No way. No way. So they're doomed to fail you. And so your relationship is now doomed to failure. So you're not, you're, so the how of what you're doing is, is, is not 
is not aligned. It's not harmonious. You're, you're think and same with having children. People have children. Like if you're, if, if you think having children is going to fulfill you, you're sorely wrong. There's a lot of, um, actual and potential suffering in having children actual suffering in that even the baby's going to keep you up all night and your house is going to become a mess and you're not going to sleep and like there's all kinds of and and then a lot of potential suffering child can can you know die there's a zen story this uh rich merchant his grandson is born and he comes to this really wise old zen monk and says i want i want you to paint calligraphy sometimes in the olden days the monks would paint calligraphy for donations and that's part of how the temple survived so he said i want you to paint calligraphy that expresses the best possible fortune for my family the highest outcome my grandson was just born what's the best outcome and he came back two weeks later and the zen monk had painted uh grandfather dies son dies grandson dies hmm. just those words and of course he was super upset like this is terrible well, i asked you to paint the best thing and you just painted death for my whole family and the zen monk was like well maybe you should take it home and contemplate it hmm. And some years later, the man actually realized the truth of this, that this was the highest outcome because what he was wishing for them was longevity, mm -hmm. mm. natural order. That is the, the best possible outcome is that no, no child dies before their parents. Right. So the grandfather dies first and then the father and then the grandson. This means that everything, all three of them live long lives. Mm. and live past their parents. And that is the greatest possible outcome. But the outcome is still death for them all. He asked for the best outcome that in reality, that is the best outcome. Mm -hmm. So you, you see the idea of having children, uh, but there, and th th why that's the best outcome is because there's a very real potential that your children could die. Mm -hmm. And that would be great, great, great pain. So this thing that you gave, you gave birth to fulfill yourself resulted in great pain for you. Mm -hmm. So having children for yourself is, is backwards um, and won't work. Right. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a method. Right. So the, so you, you see how, uh, if George wants to pursue that life and get all those things, then wonderful. But if he's, if he's oriented towards it as though it's permanent, if he's oriented towards it as though it's going to fulfill him or that it's the purpose and meaning of his life, he's going to, he's going to encounter nothing but suffering because reality again and him are now in antagony. Hmm. So, Zen isn't concerned with the whether or not you have a family. It's concerned more with how you have a family. Hmm. Hmm. You spoke about turning the suffering into medicine. Hmm. Can you uh, perhaps unpack that a little bit and maybe like give an example how to do that as well? Hmm. That's the orientation. Orientation is everything. Orientation is the whole of what we're talking about. It, orientation is our own most power. And we always give away our own most power in the in the unhealthy system of trying to struggle constantly plotting and scheming to mitigate loss and get good results and doing so out of fear right that lifestyle right that lifestyle means that we're 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 at battle constantly we're fighting constantly and we're um we're just always trying to mitigate loss and get good scheming to get good results and not resting in acceptance and surrender and learning to uh, allow obstacles to be... There are no obstacles in the Buddha's perspective. Because this world is made through and through of change, from its highest, greatest bodies to its smallest bodies, because it's constantly flowing, because it's moving, there's nothing that's not workable. There's nothing in the human realm, no matter how deep the suffering is, 
no matter how terrible your life situation is, no matter how much trauma you've gone through, there's nothing that's not workable. Out in space right now, there are giant stars that are exploding, supernovas, that are exploding in cataclysmic violence, incredibly vast and uh, large cataclysmic violence. And the universe has room for billions of those and just yawns. Oh, doesn't matter. It has room for whatever you experience. Plenty of it. And so it is composed through and through of change. And because it's composed, composed through and through of transformation, there are no obstacles to enlightenment. Otherwise, we'd be screwed, <laughs> right? But only Buddhas see this. Ordinary people see only obstacles. The Buddha sees only offerings, right? If you want this in more plain language, if you meet with a great person who is great in anything, sports, violin, or even business, anybody who is great at anything, you'll find they all have one thing in common, and that's a thirst for challenge. They don't just accept challenge, which is a halfway step. Hmm. They enjoy it. They're hungry for it, right? So they, they, they don't just, it's a, it's a good halfway step to get to the place where you can at least accept suffering. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, where the real power, the real alchemy is, the real turning your lead into gold, all your dust into gold, is when you are hungry for it. Bring it on, baby. <laughs> Give it to me. Stop waking up and orienting towards, oh, I struggled today. Uh, that well, what you're saying is like that's you know in terms of illness and healing you're talking about restorative illness a uh, restorative healing sorry restorative healing which is uh the modern me medical system which is basically dude comes into the doctor because he's his system is dysfunctioning and what he wants is to return to his old self i want to be my old self again i want to get rid of this so i can go back to the patterns and life ways that I was going around and around in before this problem happened and disrupted that merry-go-round, right? Mm -hmm. But there's another kind of healing, not restorative healing, but transformative healing, mm -hmm. which is about now that this illness has come and broken things up, how do we get into a higher state? And that might mean that the symptoms might never go away, but the orientation changes. Orientation is everything. The only issue is your orientation to the issue. There is no other issue. Tattoo that on your face. So you see it every day in the mirror. The only issue in your life, it's not Susie. It's not your boss. It's not the disease in your body. It's not any, the only issue you have is how you're orienting to the issues. And the issues don't have to be obstacles. They can be offerings. They are offerings because they make you who you are. Because they make you stronger. If you digest them, they make you stronger. You break the muscles down. You build them up. Big sign in the gym. I go to the gym almost every day. And there's a big sign, big, no pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. Turn the suffering into medicine. There are no problems. Just challenges. And this, back to what I said earlier, you, most people, their only problem is that they think they should be living without problems. If you're living without problems, you're living without challenges. If you're living without challenges, you're stagnating. You're not growing. You're not being challenged to change who you are, to see things from different perspectives, to grow, to amalgamate, to come apart. And so you got to learn to orient towards the process of coming to coming apart and reassimilating and coming apart and reassimilating. The more you orient towards that process positively, the quicker the process speeds up. In other words, quit fighting your own transformation. The more you orient towards the process of letting it happen, right? Nothing can, can 
you know, orient in a way of like, nothing can clog me up. Nothing can get me stuck. Now, I don't care how bad today goes and how angry I get and how much I shout at somebody. I'll meet you on the other side with a hug. <laughs> and we'll take that, the brokenness that resulted and create something bigger out of it. Mm-hmm. Right? But that's not what happens. People want to create, like, you know, in a personal relationship, right? Uh, Morgan's my dear friend. And one day, all of a sudden, we had this big fight. And now she and I want to make frozen, rigid, inflexible ideas about how she's a jerk. And she makes a story about how I'm a jerk. And now there's the, the relationship dies. There's no growth. There's just stagnation. Whereas if we both are oriented towards, bam, something in our relationship just just moshed. <laughs> and we both broke up. And we can take this suffering and turn it into growth and both reform ourselves and reform the friendship. Mm. It will now be stronger friendship on the other side. Mm-hmm. Right? Which is why right now there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, there's an alt-left idea that is circulating through the kind of collective consciousness that uh, those who are sensitive, that we should protect them. And I kind of agree, but it's the method that, that I think is, is where the issue comes in because the method is we should protect them from all like bullying, from all the hardness of the world, which is essentially like, let's pave all the roads with leather (laughs) instead of teaching people to wear shoes. Right. You really protect them by teaching them how to orient towards um, aggression and pain and, and mm-hmm. suffering and, and others who don't agree and how other people think and just learn to be themselves and authentic and not care mm-hmm. what other people think and how to take those sufferings and challenges and become stronger and grow up stronger, mm-hmm. not weaker. Right. So if your orientation towards transformation is like it breaks up, it suffers, it, com- it comes back together and reintegrates and synthesizes into higher forms, more complex and higher quality ver- versions of myself, more energy, right? H- higher energy structure. The more I'm oriented towards that positively, either with acceptance or even better with uh, welcoming, uh, like yearning for it, challenge, bring it on. That's the Bodhisattva secret weapon. The greater the challenge, the greater the transformation. Bring it on. Whatever comes through that door, I'll meet it face to face. Um, and so that attitude means that I am now oriented towards my own growth. Positively. This isn't masochism. I'm not seeking um, suffering. Mm-hmm. I'm not oriented to seek out suffering. Right? But whatever nutrients come my way, it's all medicine. Mm-hmm. No more evaluating experience as positive or negative. It's all just experience and it's all just part of who I am and it all makes me better. And if it's, if it's, if it's fertilizer, I'll eat that. <laughs> and if it's sunshine, I'll eat that. Right? If it's love and hugs and sunshine, I need that to grow too. Right? So this isn't, and if you're, if you take the other extreme and now you're like, oh, okay, suffering makes growth. Okay. I'll just go live in constant fertilizer <laughs> and spend my entire life in a mosh pit. just getting banged around constantly there might be periods of your life like that but if we stay too long in that we also then we get over disciplined Mm -hmm. and we get beat down right we need also nourishment of sun Mm -hmm. which is light and love and softness Mm -hmm. we need some of that right um but the danger with that is then we get addicted to that and then we get overnourished and we get fat and we get uh, lazy and we get, uh, we don't 
appreciate life anymore. We start taking everything for granted and going to sleep. So we need, you know, we need both these things. And so the the idea, the, but you don't really, the, the, the thing with life is you don't really need to invest too much in balancing these things. Because if you just kind of stop plotting and scheming, they you'll get the right amount of both of them. Stop orienting towards life, which is another way of saying this, stop trying to create a world that suits your vision and create a vision that suits the world is to say, stop thinking like life is happening to you or against you and start orienting in a way that life is happening for you. Everything is happening for you. Mm. And that will include joy and that will include light, sunlight, and that will include also fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And so you'll get, fertilizer is made of death. The topsoil is all dead things being digested by the earth. Mm -hmm. Things broken apart so that they can reform into new things. That is literally the topsoil of this planet. That's how we work, mm -hmm. right? We also chew up food and it becomes us. Yeah. So you've got to come apart psychically so that you can be put back together, mm -hmm. right? And you, so you need that fertilizer and no mud, no lotus, <laughs> right? And you need, and you, but you also need the sun. The lotus is growing towards the light. It, it doesn't get, it, it can't open without the light. Mm -hmm. So even if it, it, with the fertilizer, with the mud, it gets out of the water. But then it still would be a closed bud. It wouldn't open if it didn't have the sun as well. Mm -hmm. Right? So the sun, um, you know. And then a higher state is when you realize these things are, it's, this, this polarity is really all harmonized. That within the suffering, the light's still there. And within the light, the suffering's still there. So the fertilizer's in the sun. The sun's in the fertilizer. The mud is made of sun too. Hmm. Because the dead things that make the mud were once made of sunlight. You can think of it like that, right? So it's all flowing in this way. Mm -hmm. Or another perspective is to say it's all sun. It's all love. Mm -hmm. Even the fertilizer is love. Love is just sometimes hard. Love is like water. Sometimes it's gaseous, which is like compassion. Sometimes it's liquid, which is like emotion, like romantic love. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's ice, which is your mama's smack in your face. <laughs> or the stick of the Zen teacher. Huh. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've heard you say, and that's uh, a really good reminder for me, is don't push against darkness, but orientate towards light. Mm. Yeah, we orient, you know, we should orient towards the light. That's our, that's our orientation, right? Even as we pass through the fertilizer, the suffering of life, our orientation is, is through it, right? That's the, that's the difference between obstacles and offerings. Mm. When you see the world as obstacles and all the suffering is to be resolved. All the suffering is an enemy to attack, a problem. And that you think it's possible to live without problems when problems are what have made you who you are. So if you like who you are, which is what you're implying when you say, I want to get rid of all my problems and return to who I am, you're like, or you're beating yourself up because you have problems. Living without problems is not possible. It made you who you are. And it's also the source of your growth. And they're not problems, they're challenges. So when you view them as problems, you see them as obstacles, you see them as an impasse, right? Then everything's dark. Mm. Mm -hmm. But when you view them as offerings, as malleable, digestible, break upable, workable food, fuel, when you see the challenges from that perspective, then you can see through them. Mm. And then you can orient towards the light. Mm -hmm. So you're going through the suffering to the light as opposed to hitting the suffering and it's a wall and you're blocked and everything becomes dark, mm -hmm. which isn't real. 
again, the world has room for all your problems. It has room for supernovas exploding. So that impasse isn't real. Mm -hmm. If you don't resolve it, the world will resolve it for you. It will move on in one way or another. Mm. Thank you so much, Wude, for sharing this wisdom with us and unpacking this really insightful topic. Mm -hmm. for, um, mm -hmm. And I want to thank you, Morgan, for being a really good co-host. Uh, we'll do it again next week. Uh, I hope you listeners like this episode. If you did, uh, please share it also with your loved ones, with your friends and family. All comments, likes and shares will go a long way. Thank you so much. Love you guys. Thank you. If you would like to support this project and our free tea center here in Miali, Taiwan that you can come visit, please sign up for the ad-free magazine that we publish every month. It covers all aspects of tea, from processing and brewing techniques, history, lore, spirituality, and community. It also comes with a tin of beautifully sustainable produced tea. To subscribe, go to globalteahut.org. If you would like more information on linear topics such as brewing techniques, feel free to check out our YouTube channel, also called Global Tea Hut. Join us in the next episode with our guest, the vastly interesting and dear tea brother, Samson Swanick.